You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Back in college, I had the highest standards for the food that I would consume. The highest Who laughed? This is true, all right? I would only eat the finest cuisine from the finest restaurants, on par with Wolfgang Puck and Gordon Ramsay. I'll give you an example. A fine dining establishment. Some of you may have frequented it. It's called Raising Canes. Yeah? Yeah, we got a few few Caniacs in here. Yeah, that sauce. Now, in reality, I was like any other college student, right? I would want something that was cheap, fried, and delicious. And Raising Canes checks all of those boxes. If you haven't been, it's fried chicken. And uh, man, I loved Raising Cane so much, you guys, that I memorized my order. And this was about a decade ago. I still have it memorized in my head. I'd like an, a box combo with no coleslaw, extra toast, butter both sides on the toast with an Arnold Palmer on the side and three extra cane sauces. I could speed that up for you if you want. I could slow it down, whatever you need. But I know what I'm getting at Raising Cane's. Now, why do you think I have that still memorized in my head? Lori bringing the brutal honesty. Maybe because I have a problem. Definitely because it's been repeated, right? I've said those words so often. I've gone to Raising Cane's so much in my life that, well, it's just sunk into me. In college, I used to get together with my roommates. Every Sunday night, we'd watch a show called The Walking Dead. This was when it was at its peak popularity. The show is still going somehow. It's kind of become a zombie in its own right, which is hilarious. It's kind of ironic. But the show is still cruising. We were watching it at the peak, and then we'd watch these zombies. They're eating their food, and we're like, you guys hungry? (laughs) I could eat right now. So 11 p.m., college students rolling out to Raising Cane's. This would not happen for me anymore. I am not alive at 11 p.m. anymore. But then it was like, oh, yeah, this time to eat. We show up to Raising Cane's. We get to the drive-thru, and we went there so often that they knew who we were. They're like, oh, the Walking Dead guys. They're here. Nice. And then they'd ask us if we want the usual. We could just say, yeah, we'll take the usual. And they gave us the orders. We didn't even have to repeat them at some point. We went there so often that it was just natural. It became part of who we were. It was hardwired into us. Now, I think the Christian life is sort of like this Raising Cane's example. And hear me out on this. Becoming a Christian means becoming so formed to become like the person of Jesus, having the way of Jesus so hardwired into us that it just comes out of us as naturally as that Raising Cane's order. It just flows from who we are. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to consider it. It just happens in us and through us. And today, as our final installment in this series, we're calling Through the Lens of Grace in the Book of Romans, we're going to see what Jesus' grace actually creates in us. We've been talking a lot about what Jesus' grace is, what the message of the gospel is throughout this Roman series, and now to conclude it, we're going to say, so what does that lead us to? What sort of life, what sort of integrated and transformed life do we get on the other side of receiving Jesus' grace? If you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the book of Romans. I'm going to be reading from chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, if you'd like to follow along. We're going to have them up on the screen as well, these verses. Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, and the compassionate in cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, do you guys remember, it was maybe in high school, maybe in college, when you were first taught how to write a formal academic paper? You guys remember the structure? You've got an introduction, you've got a thesis statement at the end of that intro, you've got a couple body paragraphs, you've got a conclusion that wraps it all up. Tracking that? In that process, when I first learned that, I also remember learning about these things called transition phrases or words. You guys remember those? They were words that would start your paragraph, that would link them back to the previous paragraph so that your argument flows nicely. Phrases like in order to or furthermore, those sorts of things. Do you guys catch that Paul uses one of those right at the start of this passage? Verse 1, he uses a word, therefore. That's a transition word. That's a linking word. He's saying, because of what has come before, now my preceding words will connect in some way. And so when we see that word in Scripture, we immediately have to ask ourselves the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Ah, yeah, that's nice. David liked that. David's a dad. He liked that one. I know that's it. <laughs> No man joke. What is the therefore? Therefore, right? We have to remember that Paul, when he's shifting gears here, he's connecting us back to what the previous 11 chapters have been talking about. Now, we've been preaching through those. We've had some explanations of those over the last few weeks, so I won't go into great detail, but I think it's helpful to just remember a bird's eye view of what Paul's been doing, because if these words are going to be connected to that thing, well, it's helpful to remember what it is. Paul has been tracing over the course of Romans this huge cosmic story of what God is doing in the world. <laughs> Excuse me. God is bringing redemption and restoration to a world that's fallen apart. Remember at the beginning of that story, humans were made to live in flourishing with everything. Shalom was the biblical picture. It was peace and harmony amongst all things. And then humans decided, well, actually, I think we can define life on our own. So they decided to, and that fractured the harmony and the unity. All of a sudden, things like sin and death and brokenness came in to the world, both in us and around us. And immediately, God's response to that fracturing of harmony is to say, okay, let's get this thing fixed. He brings about a plan of redemption and restoration that comes through the nation of Israel, through this one family that started with a guy named Abraham back in the day. And from that line, we get eventually the culmination of this redemption and restoration in the person of Jesus. We learn, according to Paul, that, and according to Christianity, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the ultimate redemption and restoration. It starts to work in us, and it starts to work around us. Things start to change in us as people, and things start to change in the world through Jesus. Now, that's the recap. That's what Paul has, has been building on here. And now he's saying, let's shift gears. Let's go from that story, that big cosmic story, to what does this actually create in our lives? What does this actually do? How does this change our behavior and our actions? What does it practically implement in our world? And that's an important connection he's making here. I want to point out two assumptions that Paul has in this passage. First, that the Christian life is not just about intellectual belief. 
It's not just about ascribing to certain ideas. If it were, then he would have ended with the story, right? But what he says is that story now leads us to really practical change, really practical shifts. He uses a phrase in this passage. He says that this is our true spiritual worship when we live this Christian life. The word worship there, we often compartmentalize and think of nice songs that we sing or devotional times. But the word worship literally carries with it the sense of what you commit your life to, what you commit every part of yourself to. It's not just a religious word. It's a word that everyone, or applies to everyone. Every person in some way or another commits their life to something. And so the question is, for Christians, well, how do we commit every part of ourselves to Jesus, to the way of Jesus? Paul is saying that it's not just a belief, you guys. You're not just a soul disconnected from a body that floats off to heaven someday. You are a soul and a body woven together. And that means that things that are happening in your soul, real redemption and restoration in your soul, it works its way out through your body. It works its way out into the world. It doesn't just stop inside us. That's a crucial assumption that Paul has here. There's a helpful picture of this that a uh, Catholic theologian, his name is Michael Novak, puts it. He, he separates our faith into three categories. He calls it your public faith, your private faith, and your core faith. Your public belief, private belief, core belief. He says that public beliefs are what we say to everyone around us, what we say with our mouths. And oftentimes, those can be misleading. Those aren't the deepest parts of us. There are people who publicly say they believe things that we end up finding out they didn't actually live, right? So underneath, that public belief is always a private belief, something that you think you believe. Now, that private belief will always get tested by hard circumstances. And so that's where we get to our core belief. The core belief is what you will do no matter what happens to you. It's what you adhere to no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what the world throws at you. What is the core of my being? What Paul's saying is that the Christian life is the aligning of all of those things, where the public and the private and the core are all matched up where our lives are integrated fully towards who Jesus is. That's the assumption that he's carrying in here. Second assumption that he carries in. He's saying here that any action that we live as Christians follows after what God has already done. Christian moral behavior is never something to earn God's favor or warrant God's favor. That's never how the story goes. The story always starts with what God has done, who God names us to be, and then our action follows afterward. God calls every person in here through Jesus Christ, beloved, son and daughter, cherished, known, and loved. Every single one of us. And from that position, then we start to live transformed lives because of what God says about us. In a couple different words, that's uh, the indicative coming before the imperative. That's the indication of what God has done before we have to do anything. And that is the opposite of how the world works. Every part of our world functions with the imperative coming first. You do things, and then you get things because of it. I've got a framework up here, just a short description on the slides that summarizes this well. Most of the world functions as if, well, you do good things, and then you will get approval on the other side, right? You do the right things at work, and you get the promotion. You do the right things in your life, and you'll get the right rewards. Christianity says that you've already received approval. Not by anything you've done, but by receiving the grace of Jesus in your life. There's nothing you can do to earn that or unearn that. It's yours from Jesus. And then we start to do good things, not out of a sense of needing to earn, but out of a sense of joy because of what God has given us. We've received a gift, and now we start to live freely out of that gift. 
Christians do things that are good not to earn the favor of God, but because they've already experienced the love of God. They know what being in the family of God is like, and they long to live different lives because of it. So those are two fundamental assumptions right at the start of what Paul is getting at here. First, that the Christian life is fully integrated. It's not just your soul, and it's not just your body. It's all of it together. And then also that it's a response to what God has already done. It's not something that we earn. Now, from that point, I want to get into some of the specifics of what he's getting at in this passage about what the Christian life really looks like. We're going to look at two parts that I think uh, pretty aptly summarize what he's saying. First, he talks about the essence of the Christian life. And second, he talks about the embodiment of the Christian life. The essence and the embodiment, how that essence gets lived out. So let's look first at the essence of the Christian life. We find that in verses 1 through 3 in the passage we read. Paul uses a curious phrase here. He says that Christians are called to be a living sacrifice. Now that is kind of a weird verbiage and language for us. We don't really sacrifice very often, or when we use that word, we think of it in more of a metaphorical sense. But to his audience, that was a very real thing. Most everyone in the ancient world sacrificed in their religious practice in some form or another. And this would have been quite odd to everyone hearing his words because sacrifices were, by definition, dead. A living sacrifice is a paradoxical statement. <coughs> sacrifices were things that you gave up, an animal that you killed or a crop that you burned in order to show your devotion to God or in order to turn back to God. And so using this phrase is quite literally to Paul's audience like saying, Christians need to be a living death. Christians need to be a living killing. That's weird, right? That's an odd phrase. What's Paul getting at? Well, first, living is an active and constant thing, right? We would say that when something's living, it's moving, it's in motion, it's perpetual, it's constant. Now, sacrifice is a death. So we're basically learning that Paul is saying the Christian life needs to look like an active and perpetual dying, an active and perpetual killing of something, an active and perpetual giving up of something. So that should make us think, well, what is it? Right? What is it that we as Christians have to actively and perpetually give up? It's this, friends, that we can live life as we see fit, that we are the ones who decide what a true life really looks like, that we know best, that we belong to ourselves, the internal focus of our lives. That's the thing that we are called to sacrifice in the Christian life. And I know we live in America where that notion is really unpopular. Every one of us in this room have been raised by a culture that says prioritizing your way, prioritizing your desires, and letting those desires guide you, that that is the way to true life. That's what our culture tells us. You are the captain of your fate. So do you, boo-boo. <laughs> a successful life in our world says follow your instincts, follow your desires. Those are the true and reliable guides. And this is so ingrained in us that it actually reveals itself in how people uh, wish to be expressed at the end of their lives. There was a study done in 2019 in the UK that uh, basically measured what people requested to be the, the last song played at their funerals. What was the song that they wanted to really summarize and put a capper on their story in life? The song was My Way by Frank Sinatra. That's technically not by Frank. He didn't write it. But his... Uh, rendition of it was the most popular song, the one that most people wanted to be played. Listen to these lyrics from the first stanza of My Way. And now the end is here. And so I face that final curtain, my friend. I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. 
I traveled each and every highway, and much, much more, I did it my way. The most people in our Western world wanted the final notion for their lives, the final capper, the final party for them to indicate that they did things their way, that their desires, that their instincts, that those were the things that they trusted to find life. That's what most people in our culture want. We live with the assumption that a good and true life comes when I follow my desires, when I give myself over to them. But Jesus says that that is the surest way to destruction in your life. That is the surest way to pain and heartache in your life. That's why when his disciples were speaking with him, he saw this tendency in them, and so he asked them this rhetorical question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The assumption underneath that question is that we can get everything that we desire in the world, you can get all of the things that you want and long for and still not have a fulfilled person. You can obtain everything you desire and life can still be lacking in some way. The very core of our being, our souls, can be unsatisfied by just chasing our desires. Jesus is saying instead that true life in that passage, it's found by giving our desires and instincts over to God and allowing him to shape them instead. He uses in that same phrase that we need to, or in that same passage, that we need to take up our cross and follow him. The cross is quite literally a death machine. He's saying that we need to put to death all of the ways that we desire and have instincts to pursue our own life and give those over so that we can love others, so we can serve others. That's the entire logic of Jesus's life, friends. The whole arc of what he did, it ends with death on a cross. He gave his life so that all of us could get life. And we as Christians, the people who say we follow him, we need to do the same in ourselves. We need to allow God's prerogative to guide us, not our own prerogative. That prerogative is quite clear. It's to love God, to love others as yourself. In that commandment, we fulfill all of the purposes of God for our lives. Love God and love others. We need to give ourselves over, be a sacrifice every day to that commandment. And when that starts to happen, when we start to give our lives away like this as living sacrifices, we become people who have a different way of seeing the world. We start to perceive ourselves and those around us differently. That's what Paul means when he says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Every part of who we are starts to shift and change. To have minds renewed means to become so in tune with the way of Jesus that we no longer see the world in the same way anymore. I've got an example that I think might be helpful. I need a volunteer for this example. Anybody willing? You don't have to come up front. Nice. David. We'll go with David. David McVicker, think of a place in your life uh, that you frequent often, like a gym or a coffee shop, something like that. The disc golf course. Okay, nice. The disc golf course. Uh, the one probably close to your house out in the West Valley, I would imagine. Nice. Now, that disc golf course, I would imagine you can get to without looking it up on maps. Right? You know how to get there. You frequented it so often that it's just a part of you. Psychologists would say that you have a mental map, that your muscles, that your bones, that your brain doesn't even have to really work to get you there. You can just get there. What this passage is saying is that we as Christians need to have the way of Jesus so mentally mapped into our minds that we don't even have to think about getting there. We don't have to even consider 
the route. We don't have to consider the streets that we turn on every time. We just inherently get there. It's natural to who we are. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind means to have a new mental map that guides how we live and move in the world, that guides everything we do. It's about getting the way of Jesus into our bones, into our muscles, into our sinews, into our imaginations, into our creativity. It means seeing the world as a place that Jesus is constantly redeeming and then stepping into that redemption more and more every day and doing that so naturally that we don't even have to consider it. We can just get ourselves there. So the Christian now asks themselves different sorts of questions when they come into contact with parts of our world. When they get a job offer, they don't immediately think, how is this job going to benefit me primarily? They don't think, well, is this a pay increase and does this move me in the upward ladder of where I'm going? They instead ask, how can this job help me express the sacrificial love of Jesus to the world? They do the same thing when they think about where they're going to move. They say, how can my presence in this neighborhood help bring the sacrificial love of Jesus to my neighbors? How can I communicate love and grace to them? They do that with their free time. They do that with their giving. They do that with every part of who they are. They are shaped differently because they've got a different mental map. It's an active, daily practice of reflection and of discernment on where God is calling me to give my life away so that others might experience true love and grace. So that's the essence of the Christian life, that we are to every day become transformed into people whose lives look more like Jesus' life. But Paul continues to get a little more practical here. He doesn't, again, just leave us with the ethereal head knowledge. He actually gets into the nitty-gritty here. And that's the embodiment, the second part of the Christian life that we get in verses 3 through 8. The essence of becoming a living sacrifice leads directly into our day-to-day lives, our practices. Being a Christian means embodying the way of Jesus, practicing it. And there's two parts of this embodiment that I want to point out here. First, notice in this passage the communal nature of the embodiment of Christ, that we do it together, collectively. Paul uses the image of a body to describe Christians. He doesn't see Christians as individualized units walking around on their own. He sees them as part of a much larger whole. And a body is something that all of us live with. We're pretty intimately aware of what a body does and how it functions. There are different parts that have different purposes, and we need all of those parts in order for it to work well, right? I have an example to uh, illustrate this, I think, effectively. I used to play intramural football in college. I was the quarterback, which meant I threw uh, the football a lot, and that means I need my hands to work pretty well. One game, we were short on players, and I had to go in on kickoff, which is the most physical part of football, and so I'm getting blocked. I'm trying to get around guys. Eventually, I get blocked into the ground, and I brace myself, because I know I don't want to get hurt here. I'm intentionally trying not to get hurt. I slide on the turf. My hand goes into the planted foot of another player. And I stand up, not really feeling any pain, and I look at my hand, and my pinky is sideways. Not great. And I had never experienced something like this, so I went over the sideline. I'm like, I don't know what to do. There's somebody there who's like, I know what to do. We need to pop it back in place. Somebody tells you that. Make sure they're a doctor, a medical professional. But I've got adrenaline going. I'm like, i got to get it back out there. Let's do it. Let's pop it back in place. Pops it back in place. And then I'm like, okay, I just need to tape up these two fingers, and then I can go and play again. I don't really need my pinky, right? It's my little finger. I go out there, and I can't throw a lick, you guys. I'm throwing ducks. It goes like three yards in front of me. It doesn't work at all because I can't grip the football. And you know that the pinky 
is responsible for a large percentage, a disproportionate percentage of your grip strength, your little finger that you think isn't really that important, it's crucial to holding things, to gripping things. And I found this to be true over the course of the next month as my pinky was healing. I couldn't write well, I couldn't hold things, I couldn't grip things. I realized that this little digit, which is still kind of bent, you guys can see it's still never fully healed. This little digit is crucial for me, crucial for me to do daily activities. The church is the same way, friends. We need the smallest things to work well. We need all of us to fill our purpose in the church, to use our gifts. If we were a church of all mouths, we'd be useless. And there are churches like that. There are churches that do a lot of this and not a lot of life. There are churches that are all brains, that just think, right, and really think well, but don't actually use their hands and their feet effectively. There are churches sometimes who are hands and feet that don't actually think through or talk through what that looks like. Those are ultimately, well, fractured bodies. We need a body in the church that's a brain and a mouth and hands and a pinky and a toenail and an elbow. We need every bit of our body to work together. In American culture, I know that this is a a hard thing for us to consider. The church oftentimes doesn't feel like the body of Jesus. It feels like it's a dispenser of religious goods to make you feel good on Sunday. Sometimes feels like it's a social club of just people who all agree and high five on the things that they agree about. But that's not what Paul is describing here. He sees the church, the body of Christians, as the lived extension of Christ's sacrificial love to the world. He sees the church as a group of people who are constantly being transformed by God and who are giving themselves away so that the world can be transformed as well. And that happens not because we're particularly special. It happens because God is at work in our midst, because we are receiving what Jesus has done and allowing that to shape our actions. Friends, the church should know the love of Jesus Christ because the church is so loving. The world should know the love of Jesus Christ because the church is so loving. The world should know the grace of Jesus Christ because the church is so gracious. The world should know the justice of Jesus Christ because the church is practicing that justice in their midst. We are the lived embodiment, every little bit of what we do, this communal expression of who Jesus is. That's the first part of this embodiment, but there's the second part. Did you notice as well the diverse nature of this body? Paul says that we have different functions and that those functions all need to work together in order for this church to do what it's called to do. The body of Christ is the same way as our physical bodies. We need people to set up chairs, and we need people to do AV, and we need people to serve in kidsmen, and we need people to give their time and energy to serve Hope Women's Center, uh, to care for those who are oppressed and overlooked. We need people who can give their money. We need all of those things and countless more if this church is to really live the love of Jesus to the world. And that means that all of us have a role to play. Do you notice the significance of that? There are people, Stephen Lufkin, that you can reach that I can't reach. There are people that you can love that I can't love. Ryan McNichol, there are people that you can love that I cannot love. Tim Martinovich, there are people who can know the love and grace and justice of God because they know you, not because they know me. That's true of every single person. I'd love to take the time to go through every name here, but we'd be sitting here all afternoon. All of us are called in our individual gifts 
to give ourselves away so that others might know Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the church, so that the love and grace of Christ might be known through the church. And Paul lists a few specific gifts here. I really want to dig into those gifts a little bit more. We don't have as much time. And each of them could probably use their own sermon. But what I do want to do is keep this gift conversation as part of our church over the next little stretch. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send everybody here a link via email to a spiritual gifts test. A couple different notes on spiritual gifts tests. One, they can change sometimes based on your life experience, based on your development or your maturity as a Christian. So don't feel like this is pigeonholing you in any way. And then secondly, spiritual gifts are always meant to be contextualized. They're never disembodied or disconnected from community. Spiritual gifts are always about how you can serve the local church body in your midst right now. So I'm going to ask you guys to take this test, if you'd be willing. It can help give language for some of these things. And then let's connect with each other in our community groups, with me, if that would be helpful. Let's connect on how these things might actually get expressed in your life. Let's talk about how you might be used by God in a way that no one else can be used, because you're you. Every one of you has your own fingerprint. Every one of you has your own gifts. And God is longing for those gifts to be used so that others can come to know him. So the essence of the Christian life is to become living sacrifices. And then it's to embody the love and grace of Jesus in community with one another in all of our unique ways. And I've thrown a lot of information at you today. So I want to close us actually with a, uh, a sort of spiritual exercise. I'm going to ask everybody in here to close their eyes. If you cheat, I know, because I'm looking at all of you. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Now consider, in your own life, right now, where God might be calling you to become a living sacrifice. Where God might be calling you to give up your way and prioritize the way of another. Prioritize what another needs in their life. Is it a relationship with a coworker? Is it in your work itself? Is it a connection with a neighbor that you want to make or a friend nearby? Is it here at Midtown, serving, taking the next step into a community group or serving in kids' ministry, leading up front, setting up behind the scenes? Is it maybe at Hope Women's Center where we love and serve this neighborhood, where you can care for the marginalized and the oppressed? Is it in your parenthood, loving your kids as Jesus has called you to love them? Now open your eyes. Friends, all of you, every single one of you has gifts given to you by God. And those are gifts that no one else in this room quite has in the package that you have them. You can be used in powerful ways that no one else can. The only thing you have to do is answer that question. Where? Where can I give myself away so that others might know the love of Jesus? Where is God calling me to be a living sacrifice? Where is God calling me to participate in a body of people who are doing that together for the sake of the world? Let's pray.